Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way that you have inspired men to write down your words in order to communicate and impart truth to us. And as you inspired the prophet Isaiah to write in the passage that we read earlier this morning, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, meaning the Christ. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So, Lord, we pray that as we work our way through our text in Matthew this morning, that you will allow us to exalt Jesus as we see how he executed the Father's will perfectly. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you would, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Now, I am no stranger to sleepless nights. I struggle with sleep frequently. I find that my restlessness tends to be more psychological than physical. My thoughts can get consumed with the next day's activities that I toss and turn all night long. I've done this ever since I was a child. If I, if I had an exciting event planned for the next morning, like a family vacation or going off to camp for the summer, I would lie awake at night in anticipation of it, often being too groggy the next day to really enjoy activity fully. And then there is also the stressing events planned for the next day that can cause me to have a restless night, a test the next morning a difficult conversation with someone, a, a challenging sermon that I must deliver where a hearer might misunderstand my intentions. I envy those of you that can lay down your head at night and just immediately fall asleep. Sometimes I have sleepless anxiety that I will somehow oversleep and miss some sort of departure time. You ever have those type of things? You know you gotta get up early the next day, earlier than you normally do. And when I have those, especially when I have like a, a plane flight or something that I have to leave on, I lie down to sleep and occasionally will open up one eye, glance over to the alarm clock as if somehow keeping one eye closed will help me fall asleep a little bit faster in that moment. And I glance there and realize, well, it's only been 15 minutes since the last time I checked. And then it seems like I do this every hour until it's the last two hours when I fall asleep and then that stresses me out even more that I might be so fatigued I won't wake up on time. I wish I could do better at sleep. But none of the sleepless nights that I have experienced can compare to the one Jesus faced the night before his crucifixion. Jesus knew what he was facing the very next day. He announced that clearly here in Matthew 26, verse 2. It would be the most excruciating pain that any human being would ever face in all of human history for all of human eternity. What would you do if you knew you were going to die the following day? I confess I might be a little self-indulged knowing such information. Not Jesus. His concern was not for himself, but always for others. According to John chapter 13, the night before he died, he literally got down on his hands and feet, knees and, and washed his disciples' feet even those of Judas, who would betray him. He spent his final evening not throwing a pity party for himself, but instructing his followers so that they would be comforted 
And not only did he desire to do good to his disciples, but he also wanted to make sure that he was pleasing to his father by obeying every single command, seeing that every single standard of measurement was met up to holiness and righteousness. Now, as a young Christian, I I would read over Jesus' prayerful evening in the garden rather quickly. In my thinking, it was just the precursor to get me to the story of the crucifixion on the following day. In my youthful haste, I don't think I realized that the authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were revealing something more than just a bridge from the Lord's Supper to the cross. What occurs in those moments leading up to the trial of Jesus grant us greater understanding to the meaning of the cross. For example, our author Matthew will reveal beforehand through this event how this was all the will of God the Father. Jesus' death on the cross was not a random act of injustice as though it caught God by surprise. Rather, it was all part of a prearranged plan according to his foreknowledge. And with this as our motif, we're, we're going to see three themes within Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 68. Jesus praying for the will of the Father, Jesus within the will of the Father, and Jesus doing the will of the Father. Again, that's praying for the will of the Father, Jesus within the will of the Father, and Jesus doing the will of the Father. And as we do, I'm going to make reference to John 18 frequently here. You might also want to keep a bookmark there in your Bibles. It's found on page 904 of your pew Bible. Now, I'm going to do so. I'm going to make reference to John here, not because we couldn't arrive at the same conclusions using only Matthew's account, but since John was the last gospel written, he provides us with details that kind of fill in the picture with greater clarity. And by seeing the garden scene through the lens of the Father's will, I hope this is going to cause us to love Jesus, love the Father, and love the Holy Spirit even more as they unfold this divine drama of saving our souls. So let's enter into the sacred space of the garden where we get to observe and hear the Lord's prayers. Obviously, that in of itself should be a curiosity to us all. We're told in verse 36 that this occurs at a place called Gethsemane. In Hebrew, the word means olive pressing. This would have been an orchard next to a nearby press used for producing olive oil. And John 18 tells us that it was located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And it was a place where Jesus frequently met his disciples in private. It was the perfect place for Judas to lead the temple guard to arrest Jesus along with his fellow disciples as they would be apart from the general population. Something that in verse 5 of Matthew 26 tells us the religious leaders were cautious of. This garden is a place of instruction. It's a place of solitude, a place of privacy, a place of prayer, but most of all, a place of cultivating intimacy. And as they entered into it, we are told in verse 36 that all who were his followers were instructed to keep watch while he prayed. The disciples and whoever else was with them were to sit and form the perimeter of protection for what was about to follow later. Jesus gathered to himself three of the disciples to move further into the garden. And this was Simon Peter and the brothers James and John. These three were invited into a deeper intimacy with Jesus. To these three men, Jesus reveals his very heart. The text says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And Jesus spoke the words aloud, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
The word sorrowful in Greek is paralupo. It means overwhelmingly grieved or greatly distressed. Think for a minute. Can you imagine a situation that would visibly distress the Son of God? For the King of kings and Lord of lords to become so overwhelmingly grieved, Jesus must have been facing a trial of infinite magnitude. And because he does so, he asks his best friends, his most faithful companions, to keep watch with him. Now, admittedly, this was a stressful night for the disciples. Not only did Jesus already declare that someone close to him would betray him, but he was also holding up the elements of the Passover meal, declaring it to be his own body and his own blood. According to John's account in chapter 13, he told his disciples he was going someplace where they could not go with him. That greatly troubled his friends. In chapter 14 of John's gospel, he announced some other helper would be coming to assist him, someone like him, but someone other than him. And in chapter 15, he warned that the world would hate them because it hated him. And to top it all off, he predicted here earlier, Matthew 26, verse 31, he said they all would desert him and that Peter especially would deny him three times. It was a stressful evening for the disciples as well. And no doubt, in their human nature, they would have been groggy from the dinner they just ate and the wine they drank from Passover. Remember, the household had to consume the meat from the entire lamb in a single sitting. It was late. And they had had a heavy meal, and we can understand why they were sleepy. But we should remember the original Passover meal was meant to be eaten in preparation to leave Egypt. The Hebrew slaves were to eat it fully dressed and standing up, ready to go at any moment. Notice, their freedom was nearing. And yet, different from the Exodus, the disciples do not remain vigilant. We're told that Jesus will go off and pray, and despite returning to them three different occasions and commanding them to keep watch, they all fall asleep. They knew Jesus was facing here enormous pressure, and yet their own human flesh gave in for the moment to sleep. This will be a trial the Messiah will have to prepare for and face alone. In contrast to that, we see the example of the Lord Jesus. And I'm often asked how we know this information if the disciples all fell asleep. Well, remember, the other eight disciples, Judas was not among them, were forming a perimeter around the garden, and they were to keep watch. And then you had the inner three, but Jesus was very close by, near to them. Close enough, they could see him and hear his prayers. And most likely, they heard Jesus repeat this same prayer over and over again until they succumbed to sleep, three times even. So it is reasonable that despite their grogginess and sleepiness, they were aware of Jesus' words and his state of mind, which makes their inability to keep watch all the more disappointing. Jesus separates himself from the three, and according to verse 39, he falls on his face. Typically, Jewish men prayed standing up, not prostrate. And yet Jesus is so overwhelmed with the occasion, he has fallen on his face to pray. I've been trying to figure out how to describe to you specifically the feelings of Jesus as he knew he was facing the cross the following day. It wouldn't be right to say it was anxiety because anxiety implies a, a lack of trust in God's sovereignty. And Jesus specifically commanded us not to be anxious 
in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and chapter 6, verse 31. I don't think Jesus would disobey his own commandments. The only word that seems to fit such an occasion is dread. Unlike any of us, Jesus knew he was facing the full fury of God for every sin each member of his elect committed. He knew what the wrath of the Father was like. It was not pleasant. It was not a cakewalk, even for the Son of God. It filled him with dread. And so he prays in verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now let's ponder that prayer just a bit. We need not speculate what this cup represents. The Old Testament is very clear on it. The cup represents the judgment of God. Psalm 11, verses 5 through 6, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, verses 7 through 8. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 49, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. Now, I've lifted a few more references of the cup being God's wrath that are on your outline. Jesus prays that the cup of God's judgment upon his people might be taken from him. So would God change his mind and relent at the prayers of his own son? Well, obviously not, because the cross occurred. I think Jesus prays this way for a reason. Jesus demonstrates that he is no masochist. This is not something that he is enjoying. He dreads it, nor is he being forced to do it. He accepts the responsibility of it by knowing what will happen the following day. But lest anyone think he was somehow unwilling to do the bidding of the Father, each of these prayers, he immediately follows his request with the words, Your will, Father, be done. Just as he prayed in his model prayer in Matthew 6.10, Jesus will follow through with his Father's plan. He even prays that it will be done. Jesus prays this on three different occasions as the disciples are in and out of their sleep. They cannot keep watch with him for even one hour. Jesus had to keep waking them up. They all said they would not desert him. So Jesus admitted, yes, your spirits are willing, but your flesh is weak. Sounds much like the Apostle Paul's confession in Romans 7, doesn't it? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But the Lord Jesus does not cave into his flesh. He will be our advocate. And while our flesh weakens us, he will make up for it by not conceding to it and give himself over into prayer so that he might accomplish for us what we could never do. The writer of the Hebrews would would say of him in Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus will pray that the Father's desire will be done, and by doing so, he will save his elect. And immediately afterwards, we see it take place. Jesus is in the current of the Father's plan. We see the divine drama unfolding. Nothing that occurs next is outside of the Father's will. Jesus left his disciples to to keep the watch, yet it is he that alerts them. And according to verse 46, he knows his betrayer is about to approach, and he has to wake them up to prepare for it. The next scene is just laced with fulfilled prophecy, demonstrating that Jesus was flowing all along with the Father's plan. Judas leads a mob into the garden. He'll walk up to Jesus in the dark, kiss him so that the soldiers will know precisely who is the target. Judas's role was predicted in the Old Testament. David wrote of him some 900 years earlier in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And Zechariah prophesied in his book 500 years previously that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But more importantly, Jesus himself predicted what would happen to his person long before this night, even before he entered the city of Jerusalem. He said in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And as we've already noted from verse 2 of this chapter, it says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And in verse 21, Jesus predicted this moment using Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the flock will scatter, which is exactly what is about to occur next. Nothing can stop the Father's prearranged plan. Jesus is so aware of his situation and in control of it that John 18 reveals that when the mob approached Jesus and asked for his identity, when Jesus said the words, I am he, the soldier's knees buckled in that moment. Jesus could have run at such a point, but such a scene demonstrated Jesus' supernatural control. He is still king even though he allows himself to be captured. Nothing could prohibit Jesus from fulfilling the will of his Father. And yet, Peter tries to do so. We know from John chapter 18, verse 10, that the person who used his sword that struck the servant of the high priest was Peter. We even know from that passage the name of the servant was Malchus, another little detail authenticating the event. But Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. This was not a battle to be won by physical conflict. If so, Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels, one legion for the protection for each disciple and himself, Judas excluded. Even Satan admitted back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, that Jesus had the divine right to do this. Jesus calling upon his servant angels would have ended the matter right then and there. But note closely in verse 54, he states this must happen in accordance with the Scriptures. The events must unfold precisely how the Father said it must unfold. 
Though he had all authority, Jesus will not stop these prearranged events. He will do the will of his Father. And Jesus states it again to his captors in verses 55 and 56. They had every opportunity to seize Jesus whenever they wanted over the past week. Jesus wasn't hiding. He did his ministry in public. But all of this was occurring because the Scriptures predicted it. Thus, Jesus was within the will of his Father. Jesus was next taken before the chief priest and the elders, just as he predicted all the way back in chapter 16, verse 20, and chapter 20, verse 18, months before this took place. He was taken to the home of the chief priest. And though no Pharisees are mentioned here, using the word elders implied that this was a gathering of the Sanhedrin. We're told that Peter, though fearful of discovery, was secretly present to witness this scene. John 18, 15 tells us another known disciple was there also, possibly a reference to John himself. In this impromptu trial, several false witnesses came forward to try to accuse Jesus of something, anything that they could merit the death penalty. They eventually tried Jesus based upon the charge of blasphemy to the temple. The temple was considered sacred space, and to speak against it was to speak against God. Jesus said earlier in John's gospel that if they tore down the temple, he would raise it in three days, an obvious reference to himself being the new means of being reconciled to God by his once and for all sacrifice. In context, there was no disrespect to the temple whatsoever. There is a pause as the high priest asks if Jesus will defend himself of these charges. But Jesus is silent, doing the will of the Father. He is fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. So the high priest puts him under oath. That's what this text means when he says, I adjure you by the living God. And because he does so, Jesus is obligated to answer this next question. And it is the question we want him to answer in the affirmative, but they do not. Verse 63, tell us if you are the Christ. There it is, what everyone wants to know. And Jesus responds by saying, you have said so. We might wonder, when did Caiaphas do that? Well, first of all, Jesus had been fulfilling all the signs that he was the Messiah, so much so that they felt threatened. This had been happening all throughout the previous week, beginning in chapter 21. This was completely obvious even to the general population, much less the religious leaders. And then there was the specific moment when Caiaphas unwittingly did proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Now, I'm not going to rehash that argument again, But in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 52, he records these words about Caiaphas when he was speaking to the elders concerning Jesus. And it reads, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And John goes on to reveal in the next verse, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Yes, Caiaphas knew who Jesus was, yet he willingly chose to reject him. 
So Jesus warns Caiaphas, verse 64, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Just as a point of reference again, because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, he will also take on the role of the Son of Man. And this is what Daniel prophesied of him. This is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Sanhedrin will no longer judge on behalf of the people. Jesus is now the judge. Get this. The next time Caiaphas will see Jesus, it will be in the Lord's office of judge. Caiaphas will be the one standing before him. Chilling, isn't it? The tables are now turned. But this makes Caiaphas even more indignant. He tears his robes in anguish as if Jesus committed some heinous sin. Make no mistake about it. These men knew Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Our Lord did not hide himself from them, but they will not bend the knee. So Caiaphas charges him with blasphemy, and these mere men, these sinful, despicable men with no honor who do their evil deeds in the middle of the night sit in judgment upon the Lord Jesus. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and, he, and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. The most peaceful, honest, loving, holy, tender person that ever lived on the earth, and for that they declare he deserves death. Even if Jesus had been delusional about who he was, which he was not, that should have elicited pity and mercy, not the death penalty. As Frank Lay has said, in seeking to degrade him, they reveal their own degradation. And then the humiliation and torture ensues. Verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They turned it into a game. Little did they know the Son of God knew exactly where every blow originated, where every drop of spittle came from. But he would remain silent. He would also receive every blow from these sinful men. He would do so because this was the Father's plan. Jesus is again fulfilling Scripture. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And Isaiah 52, 14 through 15, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told of them, they may see. And that which they have not heard, they may understand. Jesus would take the abuse. We might ask why. 
Why did Jesus do this? Why did he endure this? Well, the answer is our theme. It was the will of the Father. This was the plan all along to reconcile a sinful people to himself. It is succinctly put by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, where he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. This was the will of the Father to bring about the redemption of our souls. That is what Jesus is doing, and he does so because God loves you. That's why. But before we dismiss, we, might we just consider a few applications from our text this morning? Shouldn't this cause us to make some changes within our own life in, in light of this? Well, I think so. I, I have four here. I'm going to be brief. First, just like Caiaphas, don't miss the obvious. Jesus is the Messiah. Do not turn your nose up at him. I beg you, do not ignore him and what he has accomplished. He is someone whom before you must bow the knee. Like Caiaphas, you get to choose for yourself on this day, but there will come a time in the future when he will be your judge. And what he decides will be based upon a singular question. What did you do with Jesus when you heard of him? Did you embrace him as Lord and Savior, or did you reject him? The second application is that this provides us a better understanding of the full nature of of the atonement. Someone here today needs to hear this. They need to hear this because they have been sinned against and they still feel the pain of that sin extending into their lives. At times it can paralyze them. John 13, 1 tells us that Jesus knew his own and that he loved them to the very end. Every moment of the suffering of Jesus was meaningful. God the Father took notice of all of it. And the Scottish minister William Symington observed, if not one of his sufferings were personal, it follows it was all substitutionary. All of the suffering was in our place. Jesus endured and he experienced all of it. And if you feel shame and guilt and that you have been done unjustly, Jesus of all people understands. And even those sins that have been done to you, Jesus has absorbed their effects on your behalf. He stands in your place. And because he has done so, healing is available to you. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a loved one. Jesus knows what it's like to be abused. Jesus knows what it's like to be humiliated. He knows what it's like to be treated unjustly. And he has an answer for you if you have experienced the same. Jesus absorbed all of the lasting effects of sin that has been done to us. You can come to Jesus in safety and in security. And don't miss the fact that Jesus did not want to enter into the pain and the suffering. He dreaded it. But he did so, and he embraced it because it was important for him to do so for you. Third, do not neglect the means by which we endure. Reading the scriptures and prayer. Reading the scriptures and prayer. Jesus modeled that well. We see throughout this passage just how familiar Jesus was with the scriptures. From celebrating the Passover and the Pentateuch to the prophecies of Zechariah, Jesus models the need for believers to consume the Bible. We must familiarize ourselves with it as our guide. Otherwise, we might lose hope as we face trials. And note also how when the dread was overwhelming, Jesus turned to the Father in prayer. He endured by praying. And one can only pray for the will of the Father to be done on earth as it is in heaven if you know the will of God from the Bible. Prayer goes hand in hand with the Scriptures. Prayer without the Bible is selfish indulgence. And reading the Bible without prayer is an academic exercise. But both bring the living Word of God to bear upon our souls. And fourth, nothing is outside the scope of God's sovereign will. And for most people, as they watch the Son of God in this predicament, they would wonder, what is the Father doing during all this? How come he doesn't step in and fix it? But as we can see, the Father is very much aware of Jesus' suffering, and he allows it for the sake of a greater plan in which all will be made new and justified. And the same is true now. We are still part of this divine drama that unfolds. There are those who are being born again on this day. The Lord Jesus withholds his coming for these new citizens of the kingdom. A day will come when, when heaven will come down to earth and a new set of circumstances will be established. No more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin. But until that moment comes, we will endure the effects of this sin-sick world. If society hated our Lord, we should expect the same. But it is through our endurance in the suffering, our constant faith in Jesus as the Father's will continues to unfold, that we get to witness what we believe concerning him. And through that witness, it will bring many sons and daughters to glory. We who were once lost have now been redeemed. And we pledge before others that the love of Jesus is better than anything that this world can offer. We know that the Father sees our suffering, and he is not impotent in it. But he is patient, awaiting the exact moment to bring his glory fully down to the earth. And until then, 
we have glorious opportunities to model the Lord Jesus that we trust completely in the Father's will. And even through this moment in the garden, we see that the Father still doted upon the Son. It was his most precious gift to give, and by giving it, he obviously loves us. So let us relish in the Father's will that has brought us close to him. Let's pray. Lord, when we see how Jesus perfectly executed your will, that he did this so that you might reconcile us to you, that you might redeem us from our sins, forgive us of our sins, adopt us as sons and daughters of the living God. How can we not be staggered by it? That Jesus willingly would endure this for us so that we might be brought close to you, that you would give your precious son on our behalf, As I said earlier, Lord, there is someone here today. I know they need to hear that you love them. And through the text of Scripture, I pray the Holy Spirit has lifted a veil that they can see what you have done in order to love them. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would drop to our knees and in tears rejoice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When we see how the Trinity has worked in conjunction with one another to bring about the salvation of our souls because you love us. May Jesus receive our exaltation this morning. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen.